Hi guys, I hope you're all well. Thank you for tuning in to this week's Zonal Marking Podcast brought to you by The Athletic. It's our final podcast of the year. I'm Ali Maxwell, joined by Tom Warville and Michael Cox. Michael, we've got a quick fire pod, not necessarily a year in review, but certainly an end of year feel to things. How are we moving from 2020 to 2021 on the ZM pod? Well, we're just going to go through the 20 Premier League sides and we're going to point out something that we find interesting or something that's statistically significant or something we just like about each of the 20 sides. So, yeah, we don't want to leave anyone out and we will cover everyone in this podcast. Yeah, really excited about this episode, not least because I can really just sit back and work my way through some Christmas leftovers. Uh, my only job job really is to move you guys along to tell you which team to talk about next we didn't want to do it alphabetically we didn't want to use the league table those both seemed a little bit standard so to spice it up i've introduced a, a competition element i guess to this i have decided the order in which we will work our way through the premier league teams using the ranking of one specific statistic on the FB Ref website, which will get a lot of mentions on this podcast, no doubt. A brilliant statistical resource. It's a, a Premier League statistical ranking. And at the end, I want you guys to guess what that stat is. We're going from top to bottom, from most to least. And the only other clue I will give you is that there is a, a bit of a nod to a previous Zonal Marking podcast episode here in how I've decided this one. It doesn't narrow it down too much, given that we've done 55 episodes, but let's see how you guys get on. Let's start with Leeds United, Michael, and something that you find most notable about them. Well, it's fairly simple, but they've won, if you can put it that way, they've won the most offsides in the league. They've caught the, the opposition offside the most. That's obviously very classic Marcelo Bielsa. He always likes a high defensive line. He always likes an aggressive offside trap, but we don't see so many classic offside traps these days I think because of the VAR thing I mean last season players were getting nervous about the linesman putting the flag up and the ref waving play on and now we've got a different situation where the linesman tends to let things go um, and waits to see how the move develops so it's become a bit complex in that respect but I just really like an offside trap I think it's uh, it's got a reputation as being quite a negative defensive tactic but I think it's a, the ultimate example in, in football of where positioning and organisation and teamwork can basically counteract and nullify any technical physical qualities of the opposition you just step forward in unison catch a player offside and that's your job done a couple of stats on on leads which i thought were were quite fun so i mean the first one is that patrick bamford 3.9 rafinha rodrigo 3.6 those are their shots per 90 and they represent the the first and third highest in the league per 90 which is above son came the liverpool lot i just think that's a really nice and shows that leads are just i mean if you like shots you like teams who are very attacking leads are just a, a great watch i think that was encapsulated best by the recent man united game which very much to me felt a bit like a basketball game the rate at which teams were were going back and forth at each other but I think that maybe the most interesting one for me is Luke Ayling he's a very good very progressive fullback and more recently centre-back um, he passed into the final third 10 just over 10 times per 90 which is the sixth highest in the league and most of the other players above him are, are central midfielders so for a uh, a central defender a fullback he's so comfortable on the ball goes on these really fun Mazy runs from from back to front and just overall leads are, are a really really fun side to watch this season you can imagine that i listened to that 
in a state of some angst, given that Leeds are the, the reason they've gone first is that they were top of the stat that I chose off FB Ref. Michael, you mentioned they've won the most offsides. Tom, you mentioned that they are top of the, the PPDA league, if you will. Um, but it wasn't either of those. So we're still live. And I hope that you guys listening along are trying to work it out as we go. Leeds top of something that hasn't been mentioned yet. Second is Aston Villa, who are also quite an interesting side this season, Michael. Yeah, I mean, the thing I've picked out is that they've scored six goals from outside the box, which is the most so far in the league. There's a few memorable ones there. Ross Barkley's late winner uh, against Leicester. I think that was on his debut, maybe his second game. Uh, Really crucial late goal there. I thought Jack Grealish, his consolation goal against Southampton was massively underrated, in part because... Southampton scored three really good goals uh, of their own, one from Danny Ings, a couple of James Ward-Prowse free kicks. But Grealish kind of, I can't even describe it, hit the ball in the near post rather than bending it round the man into the far post, which just left Alex McCarthy completely stranded. I thought was a brilliant piece of invention. A little bit like a Mason Mount goal that he scored against uh, West Brom in a 3 all draw, but I really like that. And also there was a... A goal that I just absolutely loved a couple of weeks ago, Bertrand Traore's goal, the second in a 3-0 win over West Brom on uh, Sam Allardyce's first game in charge. I've never seen such a cool, calm, efficient, just clever shot from outside the box that goes into the net. I really can't remember any goal like it, and I really love that. So yeah, that's what I like about Aston Villa, goals from outside the box. It's actually interesting because it contrasts with them having the second most touches in the opposition box behind Liverpool and just ahead of Manchester City, which is a surprising stat. So they touch the ball a lot inside the box and score a lot from outside the box. That last stat, Tom, about touches in the box, that's mostly down to one man, isn't it? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, Jack Grealish has touched the ball in the box more than any player in the league, and that's nine per 90 minutes, and it's it's way up from last season. Um, there's a fab, uh, fab um, profile of Grealish that uh, Aston Villa reporter Greg Evans put up on the site recently, which I'd say have a look in, because there's a, a nice little graphic in there which just shows how Grealish's profile has changed season on season. Um, the one kind of thing for me that sticks out with Villa um, at the time of recording is that they have the most regular players versus all teams in Europe. And regular players, in a statistical terms, is, is a player that's played 80% or more of the minutes played. Um, they've got nine of those players. So obviously, you know, they're having a fantastic season. I think Villa pre-lockdown versus you know post-lockdown and this season have been a completely different side. Um, and of course, it helps to play your best players when they're fit. Uh, get the most minutes out of them as possible. So yeah, they're just a very consistently pick side, and they're a very extremely consistently well, you know, side that's playing well too. Um, and another little stat which I, I thought was quite fun is Esri Konz has won every tackle he's attempted this season by winning it. I mean, essentially not giving away a foul or not um, being shrugged off the ball. But he's only attempted four in 900 minutes played to so 10 games, which for a centre back is. I mean, he's barely putting a foot in, which I think speaks to his positioning, the way that Villa defend at times can be super passive uh, and Konza kind of is a encapsulation of that of that method of defending. Next up, a team that we have spoken about a lot recently on this podcast. Tom, you've written about them a lot recently. It's Arsenal. Yeah, I, um, <laughs> I've written in my notes here, sick of this football club at the moment, which I was obviously feeling quite passionate at the time we were doing this <laughs> script. Um, Arsenal, I mean, yeah, we... The, it's, 
tough to find an angle on Arsenal that's not been written about at the moment, but I do think there are some some really good stats in terms of they're so slow in terms of the cadence of possessions in Arsenal games. The ball changes hands around 84 times per game, which is the lowest in the league, uh, and miles away from kind of Leeds is 100 possessions per game. They're slow progression upfield. They move upfield at 1.1 metres per second, which is only ahead of Southampton. And Southampton on that one are a bit of an outlier, but I think it's just because their games are so aggressive in terms of the amount of turnover that you actually don't see a lot of possessions in Southampton games where they actually build up uh, a lot. I also like to cross a lot too and they've got the third most in open play per 90. Uh, they barely have any central presence in the middle of the field and uh, I did a kind of contribution along with Coxie to a how do we fix Arsenal piece a couple of weeks ago um, and that was my kind of start of choice. So yeah, a lot to, to like or not like about Arsenal so far this season. Michael has Absolutely nothing left to say about Arsenal Football Club, but plenty to say about Brighton and Hove Albion. Yeah, I really like watching Brighton. I know it's a bit of a cliche to talk about Graham Potter and his focus on technical players, but sometimes I just look at the lineups he plays and the formations he plays, and I just I get excited about watching them. Um, one that comes to mind is the game against Manchester United, which was a ludicrous game where they <laughs> lost 3-2, having hit the woodwork five times um, and considered a penalty after the referee had blown his full-time whistle because they got VAR. <laughs> But I mean, in that game, he used Trossard, Conley and Mope as a front three, then Lilana and Alzate as the two central midfielders. And then at wing back were Lamperty, who's having a great season, and Solly March, who's made a bit of a resurgence. And it's just purely technical players, you know, and then obviously three central defenders behind that. But it's just such a commitment to playing a certain way. And I find them gloriously frustrating in quite a almost addictive way. I mean, they've underperformed their XG more than anyone. It should improve. They brought in Danny Welbeck up front. I mean, we had a discussion about whether or not this was classic Brighton Alley. You said it wasn't classic Brighton because it was signing an established Premier League player. But I thought, well, he's the kind of player that, you know, he always looks really good, but doesn't score that many goals. And to me, that's exactly what Brighton are. So I'm not sure that Welbeck solves their problems, but... He, he just adds to the fun as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, you kind of touched on it there, Coxie, around them being kind of, they look good, but do they actually perform at that level? And again, at the time of recording, Brighton have got the third best defence by by XG against, only behind Chelsea and Man City. And I, mean, I think if Matt Ryan had a bit of a better campaign, they could be a lot further up the table than than they could. But I'm kind of willing to put stock into, into the metrics, into the numbers and see that Brighton will regress to some extent. And I think that they won't be as unfortunate in the coming weeks as they have been up to this point and um, yeah I'm pretty confident they'll probably finish mid-table come the end of the season one other stat which I found which was something of a surprise but then again it's just the way that the Brighton play is that Solly Mark just attempted the fifth most passes into the box per 90 um, in open play so he's very much a kind of keen cog for them in, in Graham Potter's system of getting the ball into the box from out wide. Whereas on the other side, Lamptey is very much one who I feel receives passes or plays more neater combinations around the box instead of actually getting it directly in there. As someone who watches a lot of EFL football, I was very surprised when I watched Fulham play Newcastle the other day at just how different this Fulham team looks in terms of personnel but also in terms of style of play compared to well just a few months ago when they won the championship playoff to win promotion Michael they're next on the list what do you like about Fulham yeah I was surprised to see that Fulham had made the most successful dribbles in the league so far which was quite unexpected to me I don't think of them particularly in that manner I assumed it was due 
to Edemola Lutman, who is very much up there in the stats. But actually, it's mainly because of Anguissa in central midfield, who's recording incredible numbers for a central midfielder. At the time of recording, he's second in the league to uh, Adama Traore, um, which reminds me a little bit of Moussa Dembele, obviously made his name at Fulham, was transformed from a kind of dribbly wide forward into this kind of roving, quite unique central midfield uh, player. Um, and it's been useful. I mean, Anguissa went on a, a brilliant burst through the middle um, for an opener away at West Brom, or at home to West Brom, I should say. It was eventually scored by Decord over Reed, and that was a really crucial goal when you look at the context. Fulham hadn't won up till that point. They'd only got one point in the league, which was against, obviously, a really poor Sheffield United side. And that win, I think, kind of staved off any speculation about Scott Parker's job. And from there, they've improved. Um, they haven't completely got themselves out of the relegation zone, but they're looking a lot better. And I think, in a way, you can relate that back to Anguissa's dribble through the middle against West Brom. Yeah, Anguissa, Lookman, I think uh, Ivan Cavaliero all make up kind of the top. They're all in the top 15 players who dribbled the most per 90, which, again, I agree with Coxie, was some somewhat unexpected with Fulham and I do think they've seen a, a bit of a change in style when they've got Cavaliero up top who who likes to drift up wide instead of Mitrovic and I think they were quite one-dimensional with, with Mitrovic but I always find Fulham quite interesting where again another season they've been promoted another season where they've been kind of happy to bench the players or drop the players which got them into the league in the first place but now it seems that Scott Park has actually been able to find a uh, a group of players a system that that works for him um, Wackham Anderson's played pretty well um, Anthony Robinson especially has played fantastically at times as well too so hopefully for Fulham they uh, they get it better this time than they did um, in 18-19 Next up in my mystery ranking uh, is Liverpool not only our champions from last season but also the league leaders as we record yeah, they've got the best disciplinary record in the league, which they also did last season when they won the title, obviously. I think that's quite impressive for a side that presses high. I mean, so far they've got 10 bookings, no red cards. Leicester have got three times as many bookings as Liverpool. So, I mean, they they also have, the, have conceded the fewest fouls in the league, so they don't really seem to make many tactical fouls at all, which just surprises me for a side with that approach. I think compare them to Manchester City and tactical fouling very much is a part of Guardiola's defensive uh, philosophy, if you like. Klopp doesn't seem to need that. They just don't seem to get caught out. They don't concede too many counterattacks. And if they do, they seem to snuff them out really without resorting to fouls. So I'm just very impressed by that. And from Liverpool to Wolves, Michael, what stands out to you about them? A little bit similar to Fulham. They got three of the top eight dribblers in the league. It goes without saying. In fact, I mentioned it earlier, but Traore is top. But you've also got Perence and uh, Pedro Neto up there. It's been interesting to see them without Raul Jimenez, who's, who's kind of dominated their attack for the last couple of years. I really like Jimenez. I think he's a brilliant penalty box striker, also really good at linking play. Um, so it's been interesting to see them without their main man. It's a different style. Um, they don't have an obvious replacement. And I think they've been a bit more straightforward and direct with their breaks. I was actually really impressed with them in this in the uh, period after they lost Jimenez in, in that game against Arsenal when he got the injury, because I thought they were just really positive and really attack-minded, more fluidity, more changes of positions. The results have been a little bit inconsistent, but it's been interesting to see them without the guy who I would have said uh, was their best player. I really like teams that have a quite a firm or fixed identity, and I think we spoke about that being a good recipe for success in our 
podcast a few weeks ago about how to kind of survive after getting promoted and Wolves came up with Helder Costa on one side and, and even Cavaliero on the other got to the Premier League kind of swapped those guys out for Adama Traore and Diego Jota and then again they've kind of regenerated and brought in Pedro Neto and, and, and Podent so I really like how just that template of small kind of fairly fast very dribbly wingers is so sticky throughout all of um, all of Espirito Santo's plants, really. Dribbly wingers are all the rage on this podcast this week. Um, what about West Ham United? They're next up. Michael, why do they get the zonal marking seal of approval? Yeah, quite specific uh, and not particularly statistical, but I've just been really impressed by Declan Rice this season. I must say I wasn't really convinced by him the last couple of years, but he's just a really good all-rounder. I mean, he does everything you would want really from a, a broadly defensive midfielder, but he's also got more. I mean, he seems to be shooting more from long range. He's a threat in the opposition box in terms of, uh, you know, in the air at set pieces. He's actually very good at carrying the ball on occasion for a holding midfielder. I really like his relationship with uh, Suchek, who is a completely unique player in the Premier League. I think a real aerial threat from central midfield in open play. I mean, he's in the top five in the league in terms of aerial duels up there with Calvert-Lewin, Chris Wood, uh, Oliver McBurney and, and Sebastian Haller, who are all target men centre forwards. So I'm not quite sure what he's doing up there um, in terms of the stats and in terms of the pitch, but he's very good at it. I like that relationship. I've never really been a massive fan of Mark Noble. I must say, I think he, without the ball, I think he gets dragged out of position quite a lot and exposes his teammates. I thought he was poor in the game against Chelsea when he came back into the side. And I just think Rice and Suchek works really well as a combination. Yeah, one of the more baffling kind of lineup choices I've, I've noticed this year has been kind of if West Ham were to play like a 4-2-3-1 or, or some derivative of that and Martin Noble would be kind of the player playing number 10 but he, he doesn't always create he'd be the one leading the press at times which to me doesn't make a lot of sense given that West Ham's game plan is very much sit back and try and hit teams kind of quickly but I agree with a lot with with what Cox is saying about Rice um, I did a, a piece which I think Michael contributed to as well with, with Simon Johnson recently and and Liam who's our Chelsea other Chelsea reporter about Rice and I was kind of kind of shocked just how solid and all-rounder he is and if he's a player who does like to specialise or maybe even just you know gets slowly and incrementally better at all the skills he does possess he will be a really really solid holding midfielder for for a lot of time to come but the biggest stat for me which I found was there's no real creator in this West Ham team in terms of expected assist per 90 you've got Masawaku's top then Haller uh, and then Soufal the other kind of new recent fullback um Jared Bowen and, and Pablo Fornal seem to think of the chief creators of fourth and fifth on that list. So very much seems to be kind of the, the progression from the fullbacks and, and their involvement in the attacks uh, and Heller kind of being used as a target man for knockdowns and, and, and uh, layoffs and things like that, more than maybe Jared Bowen and Pablo Fornals, which kind of went against how I thought those players played in my head before I, I saw the stats. I'd like to know from anyone listening who could whip up this information swiftly and, and tweet it over to me or to all of us. Declan Rice is going to turn 22 in February and it's pretty astonishing that he's already played around 125 games uh, of senior football for West Ham at the age of, uh, well, before turning 22, uh, of course, 10 England caps as well. I'd be interested to know in the last decade or so or in Premier League history, how many players have played 125 senior games before the age of 22. I think it's 113 in the Premier League as we record. I'd be interested to know 
if there are many others who, who can match that for Declan Rice. Um, and as for the next team, well, it's the team that Declan Rice grew up supporting, the team that he has been heavily linked to for quite a while now, and the team that beat West Ham as well uh, just last week. Chelsea, Michael, what have you enjoyed about Chelsea's play this season? Well, it's been a funny one, Chelsea, because the side is just kind of gradually fitting together. Lampard's got so many players, so many new players to work into the side. One area that I've really liked is down the right. I think the combination between Ziyech and uh, and Reese James works really well. There's an obvious combination there of a left-footed right winger who comes inside and whips really good crosses in towards the far post and an overlapping right back who I think fires crosses in towards the near post. And I think they seem to know exactly how to combine. I think Ziyech is very good at slipping in Reese James at the right time. Sometimes players like that are a bit selfish. They only use the, the overlapping fullback as a decoy runner so they can do their own thing. But Ziyech plays the passes at exactly the right time. It has worked well a few times, particularly in that nil-nil against Manchester United. Obviously, it was nil-nil, which implies that Tammy Abraham didn't make the most of the chances. But uh, Reese James, as we're speaking, has made the most successful crosses into the box so far this season. And uh, I've been really impressed with his delivery. Yeah, one thing for me with with Chelsea this season is there's a lot of hype around Timo Werner not playing as well as you'd expect him to do. And, and that can probably be extended to Kai Havertz as well. But again, at the time of recording, Timo Werner's been getting the same XG per 90 as Harry Kane. One has taken his chances, the other hasn't. So, you know, I do feel that Werner's maybe not been as bad as people think he has and uh, give it a couple more games and maybe we will see that kind of narrative turn around. But I do have to say, Ali, I think I've worked out what the stat is now, but I'll, I'll keep it quiet for, for the time oh. being. Okay, quite impressed with that. I'd be interested to know if anyone listening has got a, a good guess as to what the ranking is and how I've done it. I guess the only real way of doing this properly is A based on trust but also I'd like you to write down your answers you can tweet me but I'd also like to know at what stage of the podcast you decided to lock in that answer so you could write down the time code potentially uh, or the team we were talking about when you made your guess as to how I chose the ranking here from Chelsea to Sheffield United Tom they've not picked up a lot of points this season uh, what's interesting for you about Blades? Yeah I was kind of Surprised a little bit at Ollie McBurney's just the sheer volume of aerial duels that he's involved in in the Premier League this season. Again, it's, it's 18 per 90, which I think is at least three duels more than the, the next player in second place, which I think is Seb Haller. So, yeah, that that to me was, was, was pretty interesting. Again, the other stat, which obviously doesn't make for great reading for, for Blades fans, is that they've scored six from 12 XG, which is really unlucky, but also... If we if they'd kind of scored all the goals we'd expect them to have done so, their XG per game is still the 19th best in the Premier League, which again is similar to the Sam Allardyce pod, which we mentioned last week. That they very much need to kind of see a big change in that those those figures. Otherwise, you know that's not strong enough underlying performance to actually stay in this league really. But I think in Chris Wilder they have a, a great manager. I think that. You know, this is maybe just one of those seasons where you get a bit unlucky and you go from having a keeper in Dean Henderson, who was the Premier League's best last year, to Anne Ramsdale, who probably is about average at the moment. Injury to Jack O'Connell can't be glazed over because it's meant Ender Stevens goes to centre-back. Ender Stevens was a really good attacking outlet for them this last season. Now they only really have George Baldock from the right, who's putting up creative numbers. So, um, yeah, not, not a tonne positive about Sheffield United, but hopefully they can, they can turn it around. I just can't get past the concept of challenging for 18 aerial duels 
uh, each game. Paul McBurney. Um, Leicester City next up, Michael. We've talked about them a fair bit this season because they're just quite an interesting team in a number of different ways. Yeah, we've probably discussed this before, but they often play 11 right-footed players, which is just really strange and unusual. It's not often you see a right-footed left-back and a right-footed left winger. But they mo- they make it work really well. I mean, Harvey Barnes has been really impressive. Another one, a little bit like Declan Rice, didn't completely see what it was about him people like so much. But I think the more you watch him, he's he's not a spectacular player, but he's very effective. He's very efficient. Especially at 1-2s, he's done really well with combining with Jamie Vardy. And last few games, they've often hit a lot of deep free kicks to him at the far post because he's decent in the air. And despite playing no left footer, I mean, they they use width really well. Often they use three at the back and the wing backs both push forward very effectively. There was a goal that Ayosi Perez scored against Sheffield United where Albright and and, uh, and James Justin both pushed forward. Justin crossed, Albright had a shot blocked, Perez turned in the rebound. It's the kind of thing you would maybe not necessarily expect when you've got a wrong footed wing back, but they make it work really well. Looking at the underlying figures, though, I mean, they are second at the table, but their their defence is the 16th best in terms of XG against per game, and their attack's the 11th best in the league, uh, again, in terms of XG. Now, that's that's non-penalty XG, and I think, obviously, Leicester have won the most penalties so far this season, and there's some degree of luck in that, but I also think there's some degree of skill in potentially Jamie Vardy being a pretty good and consistent penalty winner season on season. On season. And also, I think there's a bit of nuance in those figures they've had a pretty depleted squad up to this point of the season with injuries I mean we've not seen anything from Ricardo Pereira um, we've seen Soyuncu been out injured and Didi missed a lot of games Madison hasn't been fit so they managed to grind out a lot of results from not very good underlying figures but now the quality of the squad has been bumped up such that you'd think that those underlying figures would would improve anyway so I think Leicester maybe given the fact that they're about to have a bit of a boost in terms of quality in in several positions across the pitch could be a, a legit title challenger but if you put a lot of stock into the current xg for and against figures you'd say Probably not. Mm, feast or famine for Leicester in their league games this season. One of their five defeats at the time of recording was against Everton. And that's where we go next. Michael, Carlo Ancelotti's side. What do you like about them? Well, what I like about them is what I like about uh, Stats Bomb, whose uh, stats we're using at various points on this podcast. <laughs> and they record nutmegs, which I'd never previously seen as a <laughs> statistical category. And Everton have the most in the league. 18 so far. And I'm going to ask you two to guess... Who, which two players are the most prolific nutmeggers at Everton? Uh, Alex Iwobi. No, not Iwobi. That's a good shout, but it wasn't. He's not in the top two. I feel like Richarlison could be a shout here. Yeah, that's very good. And uh, you're you're on the right lines for the other one with the nationality there as well. Bernard. Oh, Alan. <laughs> no, <laughs> sadly not Alan. No, it's Bernard. I like the fact that it's two kind of Brazilian wide players who are top of the nutmegging charts in terms of Everton. It just kind of fits with what I want from Brazilian attackers. It's a very important statistic to measure as well. So well done, Stats Bomb and FB Ref. Um, Tom, uh, what do you like about Everton? Nothing now that Alan's not second in most nutmegs. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the other thing, one of the players I've really enjoyed watching, and it's been great to see him come kind of on leaps and bounds, is, is Dominic Calvert-Lewin. I've written in my notes there's something very Erlen Haaland about him in just the way that he physically 
physically he's he moves so quick he jumps really high he just seems superhuman in, in some of his his physical attributes and and also just a very very smart mover in terms of just getting in the right places at the right times this is this season of the Premier League he's got the second highest xG per 90 behind Patrick Pamford of all players um so very much shows that he is using his you know abilities to to get a lot of chances in an Everton team which I think are much improved compared to last season but maybe there's there's another level for them to to step up and if they can eke a bit more out of of Hammers and Richarlison can actually get his first non-penalty goal for the season they can still you know maintain course and, and fight for a top six space Michael talking of niche almost playground stats you've got another one to talk about Crystal Palace yeah I'd like to play football the way that Wilfred Zaha does uh, not just because he's a great dribbler and a good goal scorer but because he's had nearly 500 touches this season and not one has been in his own penalty box. Again, this is coming from uh, Stats Bomb. I mean, this is miles clear of his nearest challenges in this respect. Uh, Nathan Redmond and Alan Saint-Maximin, who've had around half that figure without taking any in their own box. And yeah, Zaha's just not interested in defending whatsoever and good on him. Just stays in counter-attacking positions, doesn't help his fullback, doesn't, you know, defend the near post at corners. He's just a pure attacker, which I really like. <laughs> I love how how you've really bought into this and I can just I can only imagine how much fun you had on the FB Ref website finding all of this. Um what about Manchester City Coxie? Yeah, so this isn't a statty one. It's just that I've I've enjoyed the relationship between Kevin De Bruyne and Riyad Mahrez. I mean De Bruyne I think is quite a unique player. He's played this kind of role I guess since Guardiola's come in about 4 years ago. Um but he's just become so exceptional in in the last 18 months or so. The consistency of his delivery from wide positions. And he plays an unusual I mean He's played a few roles, but I think he's best in that inside right channel when they play a 4-3-3. He starts as a central midfielder, almost becomes a right-sided midfielder. And I think it works quite well with De Bruyne overlapping and Riyad Mahrez coming inside. And there's a few games, I think particularly in the win over Burnley, which was a 5-0 and, and could have been more, to be honest, where it was just brilliant to watch them combining in that manner. And it also made me think, this is probably how De Bruyne probably would have combined with Leo Messi. And it kind of made me excited for, you know, maybe that's still on the cards. Messi obviously is not going to sign a new contract with Barcelona. Guardiola has signed a new contract in Manchester City, even though things seem to be going south a little bit in terms of the side's performance. Is that still in the cards? Because if he comes in and plays this role that Mahrez is playing, could be even better to watch. Next up is Burnley, uh, Manchester City with the highest pass completion percentage in the league and Burnley at the other end of the table a bit of a, a, a switcheroo here Michael I mean as always they're the outliers they're the only ones well maybe with a slight exception of, of Allardyce has, has just taken over in charge of uh, West Brom we don't have a, a decent number of stats for them yet but Burnley are basically the only side playing old school route one football they play the most long balls uh, 10 clear of their nearest challenges in that respect per game uh, which is Newcastle, the fewest short passes per game ahead of Sheffield United in that respect. Sheffield United also next uh, on the kind of worst pass completion rate, which is down at 72% for Burnley, which is really quite low for Premier League side. On the other end of the scale, they have won the most aerial duels, as you would expect. A lot of them, Chris Wood up front, but they're very solid at the back as well. Ben Mee's return, I think, has really improved them defensively. So, yeah, they're not a side that I sit down and watch every week, but I do quite like the variety of tactics we see in the Premier League and they are like I say the biggest outliers I think one player which although he's having a fantastic season probably actually 
uh, like there's not much more he can do to get into the England squad ahead of the uh, next summer's Euros is, is Nick Pope. Pope's having the best season in terms of um, shot stopping for all goalkeepers, considering the fact that he's faced shots worth 17.8 on target expected goals and conceded just 13 uh, and, and one own goal, which um, for this kind of purposes doesn't doesn't really count um so that's a, a goals prevented figure of uh 4.8 the next highest player on that list is hugo Lloris, who is goals prevented is around 2.2 so it just shows you that how good pope's been so far this season uh, for context jordan pickford's goals prevented is minus two so it tells us he's conceded two more than you'd consider he should have based on the shots he's faced so i think it's always been something that's it's not exactly a secret that Nick Pope is a, a really good shot stopper. Um, I just think that it's probably the lack of evidence that he can play out from the back and is as comfortable with his feet as, as Pickford is, is the reason perhaps why um, Southgate regularly picks Pickford over, over Pope. And West Bromwich Albion are up next. Last week we dedicated almost an entire episode to Sam Allardyce and this West Brom side. Michael, pre-Allardyce, what has stood out to you? about West Brom? Well, the other day I was looking at uh, the number of subs that every manager's made because obviously there's, there's this fuss about Premier League sides not having five subs and it's quite odd that Guardiola's used basically about half of the subs that have been available to him. Well, as we speak, West Brom are one of only two sides along with Tottenham with a 100% subs record. They've used oh, yes. three in every game. And yeah, it's mildly exciting that their most frequent subs this, use, this season include... How Robson Carnu, who I think of just as a real classic super sub, in part because he's got Carnu in his name, and I think Carnu is the Premier League's <laughs> ultimate super sub of all time. And in 2017, How Robson Carnu became only the fourth player in Premier League history to score and be sent off after coming on as a sub in 1 0 uh, win over Burnley. So more of the same, please. I then tried to kind of see whether this had helped, you know, the fact they'd used all their subs, whether this had helped them late on. Not really. I mean, in their wins and their draws, generally they actually started quite well and then fell away. So um, maybe it's not having a particularly big uh, impact on their play. But I still just like the fact that, uh, yeah, Bilic uh, in particular uh, made sure that he involved as many players as he possibly could. I just think that's the sign of a nice man. No surprise to hear more anti-Solskjaer rhetoric from you Michael Cox when you mentioned Kanu as as the Premier League's greatest superstar and ig- ignoring the thing that everyone seems to say about Solskjaer as a player in that Manchester United side uh, Tom anything stand out to you about West Brom? Yeah one stat which kind of surprised me is Filip Kravinovic was making the 12th most pass into the final third uh, 9.2 per 90 um, which is the highest of any West Brom player and obviously shows a player that is pretty adept at um, progressing the ball forwards so it'll be interesting to see whether he is someone who's relied upon by by Big Sam and maybe the expense of um, of Jake Livermore potentially in that side but I think that Connor Gallagher alongside him is, is pretty much undroppable at, at this stage played really well so far this season just seems like a very energetic defensive midfielder there's a lot of kind of defensive actions and a lot of outputs on that side of that side of things so I think that it'd be intriguing to see whether that is the the partnership that Big Sam goes for and Newcastle United up next uh, they're a, an interesting side in the sense that they don't always look great in terms of the eye test and I know that the numbers haven't been particularly great for an extended period of time now but Newcastle win Premier League football matches more often than a lot of their Piers, a lot of their rivals down towards the bottom end of the Premier League table. Uh, what is most notable for you, Tom, about Newcastle? Yeah, there's there's a couple of things. I mean, I 
done quite a lot of work this season actually on on, on Newcastle with um, Chris Wolf and did a kind of big deep dive into how things have been under Bruce versus Benitez and also versus Bruce last season. And one thing which we're still seeing is that this team is so passive when without possession. They've got the highest passes per defensive action in the league of 19.2, so they're allowing 19 passes before they attempt to, to stick a toe in. I think Bruce has, has realised for a while that's the case, and it seems that central midfield for them is is a place where they want someone like Isaac Hayden, but more energetic and maybe a bit more technical. And I know they were linked with Sumari at, at Lille, um, who very much feels like he he fulfills the technical category more than the kind of energetic and, and hustle and bustle defence first category. The flip side uh, in terms of attack is in Callum Wilson, they finally got a uh, kind of true number nine and he's the primary goal threat. But the worry is that it's such fine margins in terms of what he brings to the team. I mean, he's averaging 1.7 shots per game. These shots are really high quality, but uh, you know, if you're only getting a couple per game, if you miss those two, you know, you've not got a, a raft of other scorers to rely on that are behind Wilson. And 47% of all their expected goals have come just from him. So if he's out, is he, if he's having an off day, you know, the likes of St. Maximan, Almiron, Hendrik, you know, the whole supporting cast, there's not really a lot coming from them, which makes me worry a little bit in case Wilson is, is injured or out for, for a period of time. Right, just three teams to go now. These are the bottom three in a specific statistic that I chose off FB Ref in order to define the order of clubs that we spoke about on this podcast. Next up is Southampton, Michael. Yeah, two different stats here, which I think roughly show the same thing, despite the fact they're completely different. One is that they've made the most tackles in the opposition third, ahead of Leeds, Liverpool and Manchester City. I think we can all agree that shows their style of pressing high. The other one's a bit more random. It's the fact that the two most prolific throw-in takers, if you can call them that, prolific <laughs> seems a bit too grand, doesn't it? <laughs> the two most frequently taking throw-in players in the Premier League are Carl Walker-Peters and Ron Bertrand, the two fullbacks of Southampton. And it's actually by a fair distance, I think over around 15 clear of their nearest challenger. I think that says probably something about Southampton's press. They're forcing the opposition into tight corners, forcing them to clear the ball. Uh, you don't really think of winning throw-ins as a particular virtue. But yeah, that seems to to tally with what I, I see when I watch Southampton, which is quite clever pressing tactics. And uh, yeah, I think that stat probably backs it up. I reckon it's just windy at St Mary's. It's just carrying the ball out of play to a greater extent than other uh, stadiums in the Premier League. I I should say, Tom, you haven't got anything specific to say about Southampton, but ever since you said on this very podcast that Che Adams was like a budget Harry Kane, he has been playing more and more like a not budget, but very much Harry Kane uh, in the last few weeks and and picking up a lot of plaudits as well, which has been great to see. Uh, Two to go now, starting with Manchester United, Coxie. Um, not a huge fan of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer to your detriment, either as a super sub or as a manager of a big six side. But what do you like about United this season? I gave them lots of credit for their win over Leeds. I thought they were excellent last <laughs> weekend. But uh, I like how the defenders have carried the ball forward at times. I mean, that was obvious in the win over Leeds. Both Shaw and Maguire just went on sunburst forward to basically exploit the fact Leeds man mark in midfield and sometimes oceans of space just opens up. Um, Victor Lindelof's also quite good at that. Uh, in the nil-nil with uh, with Chelsea, I thought he was a player on the pitch who, more than anyone else, was trying to make things happen despite being a centre-back. And the same for the 1-0 loss to, to Arsenal. There's stats you can get on various websites now that show that, you know, he carries the ball for a centre-back 
quite a, a long distance towards the opposition goal. And Aaron Wan-Bissaka, I think, has shown more attacking intent in this season too. Got a goal against Newcastle. I think it's been difficult for him to adjust from playing as a defensive-minded fullback in a quite a defensive-minded Crystal Palace side to, you know, being asked to overlap constantly and provide an attacking threat in the final third at Manchester United. But I think steadily and gradually he's starting to show that, you know, he can make that progression into an all-round fullback. We often think of fullbacks as being very good uh, technically and in terms of attacking when they're young and they have to learn the defensive side of the game. Wan-Bissaka is the other way around, but I think he's getting there. Tom, you want to mention someone who joined Manchester United and came onto our radar in Premier League terms in January of this year. And as of December this year, is still just relentless in his goal scoring and his chance creation as well. Yeah, Bruno Fernandes has, has had a really good start to life at Manchester United. And, you know, he's obviously gets a lot of, of credit for his penalty taking ability, which is obviously something that Manu have had a lot of <laughs> um, opportunities for him to, to flex and, and try out. But he's been the top chance creator in the league so far this season in terms of expected assists. And I think for me, when he joined, I did wonder about Fernandes' efficiency on the ball. Um, at Sporting, he was very prone to a very, you know, very um, speculative efforts from range. Uh, he would always look to go for the through ball or, or kind of the long pass if it was on, without any really caring for is it always the right option. And it's very much the same now. He, he's very kind of like, you know, he has one mode and it's go forwards. But he's doing it. He's creating a lot of chances. He's scored more than XG suggested so far, which I think will probably cool down. But it does show that he, you know, he's still looking to to shoot and hasn't completely lost all of the the tendencies that made him so fun and exciting in Portugal um, and yeah so far his his skills his strengths have translated really well to the Premier League finally Michael the man who we spoke about on our first ever zonal marking podcast around 12 months ago Jose Mourinho's Tottenham yeah there's a few interesting things about Tottenham, I mean, the Son Kane relationship and the stats there are the obvious ones, so we won't go into that. I like the fact that they scored a lot of early goals, the uh, the most in the first 15 minutes of any team in the Premier League so far. Um, and I think that's particularly important for Mourinho because his sides are, are counter-attacking. And if you score early, then obviously the opposition have got to come on to you and then you've got space to break into. Um, I think of that 2-0 win over Arsenal as a game where they gave themselves license to play deep and play on the break and that worked pretty well for them. I also like them tactically. I mean, we've discussed before uh, this policy of dropping central midfielders into the defence, which has worked really well on occasion. Sometimes they've done it with the wide midfielders. They almost form a back six. A lot of people don't like that, but it has, broadly speaking, been effective defensively so far. And I also like the fact that back into last season, Mourinho kind of stumbled upon the fact that with the versatility of a couple of players, particularly in Dombele and Son and Lo Celso, they can play the same 11 in three different formations, whether it's basically 4-4-2, 4-2-3-1 or 4-3-3. And I think that kind of flexibility to be able to name that 11 and the opposition won't really know from the team sheet how you're going to play is really useful. Um, they, they're maybe not as dynamic as Manchester City or Arsenal when they've been good under Arteta, which is going back a few weeks now. But they do have that unpredictability that I think Mourinho, as much as anyone, will really appreciate. Last question to you both. I want to know your guess, what you think the statistical ranking was that dictated the order of this podcast. Tom, you're always confident when it comes to this sort of quiz. What have you got for me? Um, I think there was a little clue because I said about a team who were third and their stat, they were ranked third in it. So I think your stat is crosses per game. Michael? 
Yeah, that was. I actually wasn't confident, but that was going to be my guess. But I would have. I was less than fifty percent sure that it was going to be that. Copying Warvel's work as ever. Um, it wasn't as clever as I thought it was. You pretty much explained it when you talked about Arsenal and any eagle-eared listeners. Eagles, of course, famous for their hearing. Um, any eagle-eared listeners would have noticed at that point that indeed Arsenal have taken or have what would you say have taken the third most crosses the third crosses team in the Premier League uh, Tom did mention it as a little nugget as we went and as I said a little nod back to our podcast from a couple of weeks ago when we spoke about Mr Arteta's penchant for crossing uh, and how little that was leading to goals for Arsenal but thank you guys um, well done you both got that right well thank you guys to finish off 2020 some thoughts from both of you on each of the Premier League sides. That was uh, quite a lot of homework that you were set uh, in, a, in a busy Christmas period. And I think it really sums up uh, all the, well, the brilliance of both of you, uh, both writing on the athletic site, but also on this pod. And it is such a pleasure to be, uh, well, to have the, the best seat in the house, I guess, so to speak, uh, on this pod and, and listen to you guys each week. So thank you very much, both. Thank you guys for listening. Make sure you're a subscriber of The Athletic. That's where you can hear this podcast ad-free and so many other brilliant athletic pods. But of course, the written content on there is absolutely first class from Tom and Michael and all of their colleagues. Theathletic.com forward slash zonal marking is the place to go for a special offer for an annual subscription and we hope that you'll do that but most of all we hope that as the year draws to a close um, you're in good health you're well you've had a good holiday period and looking forward to 2021 we will be with you throughout no doubt and thanks to the guys for joining me this has been for the final time in 2020 the zonal marking podcast brought to you by the athletic (laughs) 